0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PullMeps Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Caitlin Talmadge. She's a professor at George Washington University and author of a new book, The Dictator's Army, Battlefield Effectiveness in Authoritarian Regimes, just published by Cornell University Press. Uh, Caitlin, uh, thanks for joining us.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So this book is really interesting because you use several cases in the Middle East, uh, Iran and Iraq during the the war in the 1980s, along with cases from outside the Middle East, uh, the uh, South and North Vietnam, to really dig into questions of the battlefield effectiveness of militaries on the ground. And so could you just tell me a little bit about the argument, how you got to it, and what you think the major innovation of the book is?
1: Sure, sure. So um, I was really interested in this question of battlefield effectiveness, really um, looking at a lot of U.S. military activity in the Middle East, kind of going back especially to 2003 and even, you know, the 1990-91 Gulf War, where I think U.S. military analysts really thought that Saddam Hussein's Iraq would be a particularly formidable military opponent. It had a large army, lots of weapons, um, and so forth. And it turned out that actually the, the military underperformed in both of those cases. And it really raised this question to me, what is it that determines a state's battlefield effectiveness at least in big conventional wars and our traditional explanations as as i alluded really focus on material capabilities or they focus on what political scientists call regime type that is to say is the regime a democracy or a dictatorship and the general implication is uh, democracies with lots of weapons or countries with lots of weapons and lots of men under arms should fight well Um, But we seem to have some empirical evidence that compounds this. And in my book, I present a different argument, noting that we really have to look not only at a regime's um, military capabilities and the external threats that it faces, but we have to look at the internal threats that may be facing uh, a particular regime. And in particular, in situations where uh, authoritarian regimes uh, consider their own militaries perhaps to be a liability because the military actually has the ability to overthrow the regime in a coup, that will strongly influence the way that the regime designs what I call military organizational practices. And these military organizational practices basically have to do with training, promotion, patterns, command arrangements, and information management inside authoritarian militaries. And we will see often dictators that are concerned about coups um, design organizational practices in these areas that actually hinder rather than promote conventional military capability and by that I basically mean tactical and operational proficiency and the ability to conduct what I call complex military operations which often involve coordination across different parts of the military and more initiative than basic military operations. Um, And so one implication of this is that if we want to understand authoritarian militaries we really have to look at what's going on internally in the regime. And just as coup threats can lead to militaries that underperform, uh, we also have situations in which authoritarian uh, dictators are actually quite secure in their power, and they may actually perform very well, um, contrary to arguments that suggest that democracy should should always, you know, uh, turn out the best militarily. And so, when we start looking at these internal threat dynamics, how they influence military organizational design and the resulting implications for battlefield effectiveness, I think we can get to a more accurate um, series of net assessment processes to predict.
0: Behavior. Now, what's really interesting here is that this fits very nicely with uh, this emergent and somewhat even now say dominant approach in Middle East international relations. Uh, this regime security approach. Uh, people like Gregory Gause mm-hmm. and Curtis Ryan and others have kind of made this argument about uh, the general alliance formation and, and foreign policy behavior. But you actually, what you've done here, which is so interesting, is you go really, really fine-grained in looking at the performance, not just generally, but in you know changing from battle to battle, from front to front. And how did you get the kind of data to actually dig into this kind of, uh, this kind of analysis?
1: Well, first I want to acknowledge as, as you just did, that a lot of the insights that I kind of began with in this book really do come from the, the work of scholars who specialize in the Middle East. It was, um, actually an article, uh, quite a number of years ago by Stephen David, uh, using all Middle East case studies, as you kind of alluded to, um, talking about how we really have to understand um, balancing in the Middle East as not just balancing mm-hmm. against external threats, but internal threats. Um, you
0: generalize yeah. it beyond the Middle East, which is <laughs> right, great.
1: Right, right. But it, it's, you know, these dynamics are so pronounced in the Middle East, that, that's why it was such a, you know, kind of a, a fertile place um, to look at. But you're right, when we really start looking at these dynamics, it turned out that I was able to explain some fairly fine-grained variation um, in military effectiveness that is is puzzling in some ways from the perspective of existing theories because, again, as I mentioned, these theories would tend to look at rather large, kind of unchanging mm-hmm. variables. I don't really think they're variables, they're constants, things like uh, regime change, you know, is the regime type, is the regime a democracy or not, things that don't change very much. But empirically, we actually observe that there is variation uh, even within the, the different units of an authoritarian military or um, in the performance of the same authoritarian military over time. So,
0: Can you give us an example of this, like in the Iran-Iraq? Sure. Uh, like An example of some one of these rapid changes. Sure,
1: sure. So we see a lot of this um, on both sides, really, in the Iran Iraq War. So in in the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, um, Saddam Hussein enters this war um, mostly concerned about the primary threat of coups and has oriented his military not toward fighting this big external conventional military campaign that he initiates in southern Iran, but actually toward protecting himself, which means that he does things like limiting training in the military, promoting primarily on the basis of loyalty rather than competence, limiting uh, intra-military communication, which makes coordination and military operations hard. And so forth. And the result of this is that even though he has an extremely well supplied military, I mean, this is the period after all in which aid is flooding into Iraq to try to counter the Iranian revolution, which he's kind of seen as as helping to do, uh, the Iraqi military doesn't really perform very well. Um, And over time, we actually see, and and we get to some of this in in the documents that I was able to look at in the Iraq case, um, Saddam eventually realizing that these military organizational problems are. practices are, are part of the problem here, and he needs to kind of reorient the military, at least parts of the military, toward uh, conventional battlefield effectiveness. And so we see him actually intervene and try to improve the training practices and change the promotion pathways, command arrangements, and information management policies uh, with respect to select units that he decides he can trust enough on the battlefield to to go um, against the Iranians, and this is why we see really dramatic improvements in the performance of the Iraqi Republican Guard units, especially that rather rapidly turn around uh, the Iraqi military um, fortunes in you know 1987, 1988, which is, is really you know a pretty dramatic change. Um, in some ways, maybe a more dramatic and, and quicker change than you might see in in other militaries, because they're really you know in a personalist dictatorship, the both the benefit and and the plus of that is that there there aren't strong institutional barriers to the dictator doing something. So when he decided that he wanted to change, he he was able to do so relatively rapidly. Um, and conversely, on the Iranian side, we see a little bit of a, a different story in the sense that Iran enters the war um, in some ways like Saddam, very concerned um, in the regime there about a series of internal threats because they just had a revolution. There are all these threats of separatism, there are threats of counter-revolution, threats of coup, threats of civil war. I mean, just about every every type of you know non-external, non-conventional threat you could face, the the uh, nascent regime in Iran was dealing with that. And then they, of course, they also had the external threat in the form of the Iraqi invasion. And what's interesting is um, early on, some of the Iranian units are actually decent. The legacy Artesh units um, that were trained by the United States and funded by the United States under the Shah's rule, actually do okay in conventional warfare because that's what they had been set up to do and the Shah trusted them to do that. Um, Over time, however, we actually see that the nascent revolutionary regime in Iran came to distrust those units precisely because they had been affiliated with the Shah. And uh, I think also just made some basic inferential errors in, in attributing victories to the revolutionary military forces rather than the legacy forces. And over time, the legacy forces um, we're basically, you know, kind of ground down and, and you know, uh, subject to these coup prevention practices that I talk about. And the result of this is that Iranian military performance declines and they eventually lose the war despite the fact that they have a lot of strategic advantages, right? They have a bigger population, they have a bigger economy, they have more strategic depth. They had all of this funding and training from the pre-revolutionary era. We might expect um, them to do very well against the Iraqis, but we see that there are these overtime changes that suggest otherwise.
0: And that's actually really interesting, this kind of degradation or I mean, the improvement seems like it's fairly easy to understand. You're losing a war, you have to change. The degradation of of a fairly right. professional military over the course of a long war or you know over the course right. of a political crisis, that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's methodologically not to get too far into the weeds, but it was one of the things I, I was trying to focus on a bit in the case, because I think you're right. We might we might say, well, improvement is what we would expect. We would expect there to be learning. Um, and, you know, if if. Uh, if that happens, then maybe that's just kind of you know what, what we would expect. Um, in the Iraqi case, though, I will say, even though we might expect there to be learning, the learning took a really, really long time, <laughs> longer, longer than um, we might expect otherwise. And the only reason the Iraqis really were able to kind of get away with it, so to speak, was that their opponent was going through a bunch of similar issues. Um, but you're right. The fact that in the Iranian case, it actually goes in the other direction suggests just how tight this linkage is between the regime's threat perceptions, the military organizational practices, and the resulting battlefield performance.
0: Makes me think of Egypt and the run-up to
1: 1967. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think um, there's a lot of these dynamics. And in fact, Risa um, Brooks, who I'm sure you know, um, has done some really excellent work kind of looking at that evolution um, in Egypt. And it affords a lot of the same... Um, kind of methodological or inferential advantages of some of the case studies that I look at in my book in the sense that she is looking at the same state over time. And so she can really trace how these differences in um, the coalition, I believe, that's supporting the regime and the regime's threats, how that relates to the way the military is set up and ultimately the improvement that we get in Egyptian military performance mm-hmm. from 67 to
0: 73. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago. You, you mm-hmm. mentioned the documents you were able to look at. So I mean, so you, the book has full of these really interesting quotes from these documents that uh, we that were captured over the course of of the of, of the war in Iraq, mm-hmm. and this is kind of part of a new edge of research which is being done exploiting these captured documents. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, what were you able to see? What did you learn from looking at this? Which previous scholars might not have been able to gain insights into?
1: I think what was um, so fascinating about these documents, and I I was really looking at them, I think I was the second researcher who came into the... the, Captured Records Research Center, the CRRC. At, the and, one that was at, recently and, closed down. <laughs> yes, I was, I was about to get that. It, it's unfortunate. I mean, this uh, this archive has really been through a whole series of twists and turns with respect to scholarly access. Um, but it, it really gave some insight into um, context, first of all. So just understanding the, the full breadth of things that were going on. In, in the regime's thinking at, at a given time, it's like, yes, there was a battle over here, but the regime was also concerned about the Kurds. Or yes, Saddam was dealing with uh, one military unit that he trusted, but he was having all these problems in another military unit. And so kind of getting the fuller picture, which so often in studying these regimes, we don't really have. We have to kind of infer intentions or infer objectives from actions. And that's not the worst thing in the world, but it, it's always better to have things straight from the horse's mouth. And in this case, we really have very detailed not just records but recordings you know Saddam was was kind of well I won't compare him to any US politicians but he like he liked <laughs> to record things and um that really tells us a lot about um, the inner workings of the regime. And it also gives you some insight, even just to him as a human being. He had instances where his little daughter would come in to, during some of his conversations with generals. Um, the officers would discuss their wives and how happy their wives were when uh, they, the Iraqis won certain battles. They called it the Al-Fa effect after, <laughs> after the battle in nineteen. 19- so, I mean, it, it just, it, it gives another layer that lets you be a little more confident in making some of mm-hmm. these judgments.
0: But you didn't have access to documents like that. In the Iranian
1: case. No, and I would say um, the Iranian case um, is the one case in my book that I hope, you know, I hope some future scholar maybe someday will rewrite that case and and, mm-hmm. and we will know more. Um, because of the four regimes that I that I look at in the book, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Iraq, under Saddam, and Iran, the Iranian regime is the only one that is truly today still in power really in the exact same kind of format that it was during the time I studied it. So of course, North Vietnam is, is, you know, the communist regime is still in place there, but it's reformed a lot. They've opened up, they've issued their own military histories, those military histories have been translated, we have lots and lots of people from both sides of the war who are willing to be interviewed. Iran was the most kind of black boxed of the cases because the regime really is still relatively close hold On information about the war and there is a lot we don't know and I I try to be kind of cautious in my uh, you know assertions and assumptions with with that case but nevertheless um, the war that occurred in the 1980s was so heavily watched and surveilled by all the actors in the region and the United States and intelligence agencies and so forth that we do have a lot of good I think triangulation Mm -hmm. of of what was going on at the time.
0: So, but, if you were going to then compare the the kind of formation and development of the Republican Guard to the creation of, say the besiege or the IRGC, do you see these as roughly comparable, or do you think they're being driven by different motivations and pressures?
1: I think some of each there's there's um similarity in the sense that again, I think in in Western scholarship on you know based on kind of the the European nation-state experience and military formation experience, the assumption has long been kind of war made the state and the state made war, and the military is all about combating external threats. And that sort of implies a certain um, series of forms of military organization that are oriented toward conventional war and so forth. And both the Iran and the Iraq cases, I think, contradict that, as do a number of other experiences in, in other parts of the world, not only the Middle East. Um, in the sense that I think, you know, both the Republican Guard and the, um, you know, forces, those did not, those were not really created out of a desire to go conduct, you know, Israeli combined arms maneuver style warfare. I mean, this is not what these forces were about. At the same time, um, there were some important differences. And I think one of, the, one of the most striking features in the Iranian case that I look at in, in my book and also to a slightly lesser degree, but I think still present, the North uh, Vietnam case is that there was a strong ideological component to mobilizing these um, large kind of popular forces, and of course, Iraq had a popular army too. It was you know the same idea that you would have, kind of large numbers of people that would just fill out your your infantry. Um, and so I think you know that was that was a bit of a unique feature on, on the Iranian side the the role of mm-hmm. ideology and zealotry and you know it's a combination of revolutionary fervor and nationalism and kind of a Shia you know martyrdom ideology those were all in the mix I think.
0: Whereas the Republican Guard is more about creating something professional and disciplined.
1: yeah, then ev- eventually it got there. I mean I think I think the origins of it were to have a professional coup protection force. I mm-hmm. mean it was not professional in the sense of being, um, you know, externally oriented, but it was obviously more professional. I mean, I think the Republican Guard, its counterpart in many ways was more the Artesh um, and, you know, in, in Iran, the kind of the, the legacy Shah era professional, semi-professional military, um, whereas I think the besiege, um, you know, counterpart was more the popular army in, in Iraq.
0: Now, when you look at the the evolution of of the Iraqi military, I mean, one thing which is striking is that the improvements that you note and the success that it enjoys down uh, in in Iran, down south, is followed and, and contemporaneous with the chemical weapons assaults on the Kurds up north. How do you square that, this kind of increasingly professional, externally directed military with this deployment against a domestic enemy, um, and the use of chemical weapons, you know, at a time of increasing command and control, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did you interpret that development?
1: Well, to be clear, I mean the Republican Guard units that were increasingly professional, as you know and competent were also using chemical weapons in in these large scale attacks. And in fact, um, I think the Iraqis, you know, as, as repugnant as it sounds to say, they had. Very strong, good military imperatives <laughs> for using these these repul- you know repugnant weapons. I mean they they were really outnumbered by the Iranians. They um, you know were facing masses of highly motivated Iranian infantry that would just conduct these human wave attacks. And one of the only things that is effective against that type of force, when you know you're not mm-hmm. particularly skilled yourself, is some something that's going to have a lot of firepower, which chemical um, munitions enable them to do. So, um, in a certain sense, that that the use of that tactic was common across, across both, um, you know, both fronts of the war, both kind of in the, in the North, the Mm -hmm. Northern theater and, and in the South. Um, you know, I think, um, it did obviously have different sets of targets in, in the Kurdish areas. And uh, as you noted, and I've actually visited there, I mean, these areas are still living with the legacy of these massive conventional attacks against, um, Mm -hmm. civilians. Um, I think, Part of the regime's calculation there was that they had limited numbers of forces and so chemical weapons would essentially magnify their, their, Mm -hmm. I I hesitate to use the word effectiveness, but magnify the impact that they could have with relatively small forces in both places.
0: But it's interesting though because the, the Kurdish issue there, it kind of it, it introduces almost a third element. You yes. talk about the coup on the one mm-hmm. hand and external threats on the mm-hmm. other hand, mm-hmm. but things like the, the, the challenge posed by Kurdish mobilization, or for that matter, Arab Spring style mm-hmm. mobilization, it seems like a third type mm-hmm. of pressure on these kinds of authoritarian regimes.
1: I agree, and um, it's it's interesting to me that you mentioned in the Iraqi case where yes, you're right, that was, that was a factor in terms of the Kurds. I think it was also a big factor in the Iranian case because of course the, the regime that had just been ousted was ousted by exactly the type of popular uh, threat that, that you describe. Um, and I get into this a little bit in, in my book in the sense that I do think there's there's a range of threats, right? There's conventional war and there's coups, but there's also um, mass threats. You know, coup, coup mm-hmm. threats, that's an elite threat. Um, and you do have, um, you know, popular threats that are, that are an issue as well. I think the big issue, though, <clears throat> that, that I came to, at least in in theorizing about this, is that um, it's not that hard necessarily to build um, a military that can defeat popular threats and protect you against coups at the same time. There's not as big of a trade off there. There's a larger trade off or a sharper trade off between the military skills needed in conventional war and the ones needed to avoid um, being vulnerable to coups because many of the exact same skills that you would want your military to have in order to be conventionally externally effective um, actually could make it easier to overthrow the regime. Whereas you might be able to build a popular um, you know, police police force basically, or a, a you know, a, a force to deal with mass protests and still be able to protect yourself against coups. And of course, the interesting thing in, you know, over the last um, I would say 40, 50 years in the Middle East is we do see regimes trying different constellations of security institutions to try to deal with this problem. There's a a uh, fantastic book, actually, that um, just came out by Sheena Greitens um, called um, The Dictator's Secret Police, I believe is the name of the book. And she, um, you know, I spend two pages on this. Her entire book is about your question, basically, about how dictators design their security institutions, whether they're oriented toward dealing with popular or elite um repression and kind of the implications for, for violence internally within states, which I I definitely think is kind of the next area of research um, in this. And she's certainly leading the way.
0: Sounds really interesting. Well, we want to thank you uh, for joining us. We've been speaking with Caitlin Talmudge, the author of the new book, The Dictator's Army, Battlefield Effectiveness and Authoritarian Regimes, just published by Cornell. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank
1: you so much. It's a pleasure.